Uh, that's on page 976, Ephesians chapter 2, reading from verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, uh, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Good evening, good afternoon, whatever time it is. Hi. Nice to be with you this morning. I'm always counted a privilege to be able to share God's word with you folks. So as Jason has prayed, let's let's look at this uh, this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. If you're one of those people who likes titles, I just simply call this One in Christ. So the sacrificial system that God gave to Old Testament Israel was very detailed and was very specific, wasn't it? From the materials that were used for constructing the tabernacle to the ingredients that went into the incense, the anointing oil, and the types of animals that were even offered as sacrifices, these instructions given by God to Moses were very, very clear. Failing to follow God's instructions came with a price. You may remember that Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire before the Lord and paid for it with their lives. That's in Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> now, one day each year was set aside as the Day of Atonement, and at this time the high priest, who was Aaron, would enter the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel, including the priesthood and himself. In the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was separate from the holy place, separated by a curtain. No one could enter the Holy of Holies because beyond the curtain was the Ark of God, the very presence of the Holy One of Israel. <clears throat> so the priest, he was washed, he was anointed, he was carefully dressed in all these beautiful priestly garments before entering the most holy place. And when he did, he carried a censer of burning coals from the altar with sweet incense on it as he entered. And the incense was placed again in a censer before the ark of God, and the smoke went up from it and obscured the mercy seat, the very presence of God. Otherwise, the priest could very well die. 
He would then take bull's blood from the sacrifice on his finger and sprinkle it on the mercy seat seven times. This was offered for the sins of him and the priests. He would repeat this process, but this time with goat's blood, from the, from the sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, into the hem of the garment that the high priest wore, into his robe, were embroidered these little bells and pomegranates, so that as he walked into the Holy of Holies, the bells could be heard by the congregation. The people would be waiting with trepidation. If the bells continued to ring, all was well. If not, the priest may well have been slain because he had not followed the instructions or the atonement had not been accepted by the Lord. That's Leviticus 16 verses 8 to 34. It's important to note that the Day of Atonement was required annually. It was an ongoing process for the Israelites as God's covenant people. The high priest was not only making atonement for the people, but also for himself as a sinner. And for the Israelites, this process would never end. Why? Because just like you and I, they were sinners. And for sinners, sin is a way of life. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 7, we read this. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have the otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there was a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. There is only one sacrifice sufficient to expunge sin, and that was the death of the spotless Lamb of God on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. He is our atonement. He is our eternal high priest. He has opened the way for sinners, such as you and I, to receive forgiveness for sin and thus have new life in him. In Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54, we read the account of Jesus' death. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. What is the significance of the curtain being torn in two at the moment of the Lord's death? This curtain was a barrier preventing entry into the Holy of Holies. As Jesus' body was torn, so the curtain was torn. Entrance into God's presence was no longer according to the sacrificial system of Israel, but by faith in the perfect atonement of God's own Son. Jew and Gentile both now had access to God the Father through faith in God the Son. As we've been looking through the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and into chapter 2, Paul has recounted for us this immeasurable bounty and wealth and heritage and blessings that have been granted to the Ephesians, and in fact all Gentiles, and that includes you and I, through Christ. And remember, Ephesus was a holy pagan city. Everywhere the Christians of Ephesus looked, they were reminded of the idolatry of the place. The temple of Diana or Artemis attracted worshippers from other regions. Witchcraft, the Judaic mystery religions abounded. And of course, the emperor required worship as well. So in the midst of this backdrop of religious idolatry, Paul and his co-workers are building up the Ephesian church in the knowledge of their Savior. And now he begins to introduce them to this wonderful thing called the Church of Jesus Christ, of whom they are all members together. So let's look at these verses together, verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the, at the, that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul refers here to the Gentile Christians at Ephesus as formerly the uncircumcision. Why? Well, if you recall from the book of Genesis, God initiated a covenant with the patriarch Abraham, Father Abraham. The sign of that covenant was circumcision of every male in the family. The Israelites, through Abraham, are included in this covenant. Thus, every male in the covenant of Israel was circumcised as a sign of their heritage in Abraham and their specialness in the eyes of God. It, is distinguished, it distinguished them from other nations as God's chosen people. Proselytes to Judaism were also required to be taught the Torah and then circumcised to join covenant Israel. Gentiles by nature were excluded from the covenant. So when Paul refers to the Ephesians as Gentiles in the flesh, he is actually making reference to something very important regarding the sign of circumcision. 
In Deuteronomy 10, Moses recounts to the Israelites what God requires of them. In verse 16, he says something that would resonate with them as God's covenant people. He admonishes them, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You see, the true evidence of dedication to the Lord was not simply the sign of physical circumcision, folks, but that of the heart. That simple but painful surgical procedure was but a reminder that they should love the Lord their God with their heart and soul that they might live. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Loving God and keeping his commandments were evidence of the inner circumcision. We'll say it again. Loving God and keeping his commandments were evidence of the inner circumcision. Thus, while Israel was the covenant people of God and were given circumcision as the sign of that covenant, only a remnant of Israel were true Jews. The true Jew is one who expressed the faith of Abraham, whose heart was circumcised. Thus, Gentile nations were alienated from the covenants of God because they were not Israelites. However, Jews, though circumcised, receiving the mark in their flesh, if they did not display the faith of Abraham, they were not the sons of Abraham either, for right standing with God comes by faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 and Galatians 3, verse 6. All Gentiles, the Ephesians included, were excluded from the covenant rights of Israel. But more importantly, they were alienated from the life of Christ. The messianic promises, by and large, didn't apply to them. They were in the world without a saving knowledge of God, and by nature, they were covenant breakers. Verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The gateway into God's kingdom was open to Gentiles and Jews in the dark hour when Jesus gave up his spirit. Bodies in the tomb came to life. The shed blood of Jesus Christ through his death on our behalf brought the Gentiles into the new covenant. Circumcision of the flesh was no longer the sign, but circumcision of the heart. The prophet Ezekiel tells us, And I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my rules, and obey them. Ezekiel eleven nineteen and 20a. 
In Herod's temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, outside the temple walls, there was an area referred to as the Gentiles' courtyard. A soreg, which was a low lattice screen or a gate, was used to prohibit the Gentiles from accessing the temple proper. Only purified Jews were allowed to enter the temple area. This is the second picture of that wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Thus, Jesus in his atoning sacrifice has broken down every wall and brought peace to both Jews and Gentiles through his work on the cross. And when this verse speaks of laws and ordinances, it's referring to the sacerdotal or priestly system, characterized by what? Sacrifices, washings, the particular robes of the priests, the litany of priestly requirements, all conveyed upon the tribe of Levi. With the ending of the sacrificial system made perfect through the true Lamb of God, there was no longer two distinctions, Jew and Gentile, but one, those who expressed a lively faith in Jesus Christ. The words of John the Baptist ring ever true, don't they? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29 In Christ there is only one humanity. Race, skin color, heritage, nationality are no longer to cause division. All who are in Christ are one. And in him, as new creations, being born again of the Spirit of God, we are accredited now with as being covenant keepers, no longer covenant breakers. Verses 17 to 22. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Regardless of our heritage, our social standing, or anything else, both Jew, whom God, uh, Paul accounts as those who are near, and Gentiles, those who are afar off in terms of God's covenants, Christ has provided peace and has become our peace. The scripture tells us that because of what Jesus has done for us, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16 The high priest of Israel entered the Holy of Holies with fear and trembling, not knowing if the sacrifice for sin would be accepted by God. His life was on the line. Now contrast that with the confidence that you and I have as Christians, what we have been granted to enter the very presence of God. We approach God with reverential fear, knowing that our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. 
But Jesus' death and resurrection has reclaimed for us a personal relationship with the Father by the Spirit, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 18.15b Paul was a Roman citizen, and citizenship is an interesting thing. Paul's citizenship in Rome gave him these things. Exemption from degrading punishments. That's why he could tell the Roman centurion, don't beat me, being a Roman. <clears throat> the right to appeal to the emperor before a sentence, which he did. A right to be sent to Rome for trial before the emperor if charged with unlawful release of slaves. Rewards or merit simply by being a citizen of Rome. Recognition of citizenship all across the empire. Special privileges in the city where, his where citizenship is granted, like Tarsus for Paul. Roman citizenship meant freedom within the empire, not bondage conditions of a vassal or slave. However, the word citizen that's used in the passage we have here is sympolites, and it denotes a fellow citizenship. It's a metaphor which means spiritual citizenship. It expresses the consecration of the saints of God set apart for his use. That's your citizenships. That's my citizenship. How much greater are our entitlements as citizens of God's kingdom and members of his household? When we walk up to the door of his house, the welcome mat has been extended us for time and eternity. Look at the construction of this wonderful house that he's building. It's constructed on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This refers to the promises of God expressed in God's laws all throughout the Old Testament. It includes all the promises of the coming Messiah fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles also knew Jesus and they penned the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This also is our confidence that we can rely on God's word from Genesis to Revelation. All of these riches have been extended to us as fellow citizens of the kingdom. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. What does that mean? If you have in the construction industry, you might know this. A cornerstone was the first stone that was set down in the constructionary construction of a masonry foundation. All other stones were set up in reference to this cornerstone, thus determining the, the position of the entire structure. Jesus is the plumb line. Jesus is the level. Jesus is the datum for how the house of God is being built. Everything, including the law, the prophets, and the apostolic teaching of the New Testament align to him. By him and him alone are all things measured. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 9 to 11 tells us this, For we, you and I, are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Paul, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay any a foundation 
other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The holy temple he's constructing, folks, is composed of living stones. First Peter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You and I, brother, you and I, sister, are the living stones of God's holy temple. The household of God is reflected in his church. The assembly of us here today and wherever two or more are gathered in his name. Matthew 18, 20. How does God look upon his church? It's sacred. It's holy. It's unified. It's solid. It's beautiful. It's glorious. Because though we are far from perfect, yet we reflect his glory. Yes, of course we continue to wage war with sin in our own lives. And as we do, we receive this encouragement. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house for every good work. 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 and 21. We are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, by His Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God resides in each and every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The promise given to the soldier of Christ is, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John 4, 4 verse 4. Jesus overcame sin. He overcame the world and all of its influences and all of its temptations and he overcame Satan. And now the same spirit of his power resides in us. He has, take, he has given us everything necessary to be his disciples, his learners. The question is, as members one of another and members in the eternal kingdom of God, what shall we do with this unspeakable gift? Three points of application. First of all, acknowledge that we are not in this fight of faith alone. We're members one of another. As different parts of his body here on earth, we are dependent upon one another. Did you get that? We're not independent, we're interdependent. We depend upon one another. We build one another up in the most holy faith. We strengthen one another. We admonish one another. In short, we display the kind of love that Jesus displays one towards another. That's what the word together means. Secondly, <clears throat> in the day of steam trains, you may remember steam trains, coal was thrown uh, into the furnace to heat the water to create steam. Now, tell me something. Do you think the fireman, the, the person who was throwing that coal into the furnace to create the hot water and create the steam, 
was doing it so that the engineer could blow the whistle on the train. Is, is that why he was heating up that steam, to blow the whistle? Of course not. The steam was created to do what? Drive the wheels of the train. Make it move forward. Look, folks, God has invested his son's life in us. He has filled us with the same spirit by which he created the heavens and the earth. Ought we not to have the confidence to be able to go into our communities, our workplaces, our extended families in the power of his spirit? We're his. Zechariah, Zechariah 4 verse 6b says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Thirdly, this same spirit who indwells us has another task, to draw us closer to Christ. As he draws us closer, we become ever more aware of our unworthiness to be in his presence. We become aware of the sin in our own lives that contrasts with his holiness. Thus, he equips us, he equips us to make war against our own sin. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus, our high priest, has entered the Holy of Holies, and he's offered the perfect sacrifice. He has atoned for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jew and Gentile are now one in the covenant of his eternal grace. We have only one nationality, that of being Christians, of being his disciples. And he is building his church, the apple of his eye. You and I, together, united in his love. What shall we offer him in return? Amen.